what does it mean to bring our whole selves into the world? To give ourselves the gift of unconditional acceptance? Join me as we learn together. I'm Jorgen Salvis, and this is Unshaming. Hey everyone, it's Jor, and I just wanted to remind you, this is the second to last episode of season two. I cannot believe that. This season has been almost a year long, actually, and personally, it's been amazing for me. I've learned so much from all of the guests who have come on the show, and the season finale actually will sort of be kind of like a recap and a reflection of everything season two. So stay tuned for that in two weeks. And we'll be taking a break after the next episode, but returning in the fall. And you can keep up with us actually and stay in touch on Instagram and on TikTok at Unshaming so that you don't miss a beat. Now let's get into the show. So in this episode, I interview Victoria Lee. She is a fiction author with a fabulous new book out that is called A Lesson in Vengeance. I'll link it in the show notes. It's a thriller with elements of mental health and mental illness awareness, and the inspiration actually came from her own life. Victoria lives with a diagnosis called psychotic depression. I'll let her tell her story because it's a beautiful one and an important one. And she tells it way better than I do. She is also a PhD psychologist and a neuroscientist, something that has allowed her to advocate for herself and her story within her field. I actually got inspired to do an episode on mental illness and mental health after I read Oprah's new book that came out, What Happened to You? And I highly, highly, highly recommend it's incredible and it's been you know changing my life as i've been kind of combing through it in the last couple weeks it's basically about changing the question from what's wrong with you a question that all of us every single one of us have been asked before changing that question to what happened to you a question that is much more curious a question that seeks to get to the root cause of some of the challenges and struggles that we we face in life you know the mentally ill community is a community that we rarely ever hear stories from and even when we do hear stories of this community represented in the media they are rarely ever told by people with mental illnesses i want this episode to help us understand that people with mental illness want the same things as everyone else safety love, and community. This is the shame of serious mental illness. Before we get started with this episode, I want to mention that it does contain discussion around sexual abuse and suicide. If you or someone you know is being or has been sexually abused and would like help, you can contact the National Sexual Assault Hotline at 1-800-656-HOPE or log on to Rain. That's R-A-I-N-N dot org. Thank you. I'm Victoria Lee. I am a young adult author of three books, um, The Fever King, The Electric Air, and A Lesson in Vengeance. I am a partner. I'm a child. I'm a dog owner. 
a Muay Thai boxer, um, a reader, and I have psychotic depression or depression with psychotic features, which is a form of depression where if it gets severe enough, you can start experiencing hallucinations with audio and visual, as well as like having delusions. And Victoria, when did that start to develop for you? I would say it probably started when I was in middle school. So when I was in sixth grade, I was bullied really severely. At one point, this girl behind me like cut off some of my hair and like passed it around the class. And like, I just remember being what felt like, like the absolute lowest rung on the social hierarchy of the school. Like I ate all of my lunches in the library or like in my homeroom teacher's class. I would try not to go to school as much as I could because I couldn't bear to face people. And it got so severe at one point that I tried to kill myself. We don't see a whole lot of like suicidal gestures or suicide attempts from 11 and 12 year olds. But when I was in seventh grade, I, uh, I switched schools, but the summer before I switched schools. So the summer between being bullied in sixth grade and starting at my new school in seventh grade, a guy moved in across the street from me named Brian and Brian became a family friend. He became my triathlon coach. Uh, he would like help me create a training schedule for races. He would, you know, go with me to the track at the local university or to the natatorium to swim. Uh, but he also ended up sexually abusing me for four years. And that, as you could imagine, sparked like a fresh wave of depression or just maybe even just buried me deeper in the depression that I was already enmeshed in. And I started to have psychotic features at my new school in seventh grade. Specifically, I remember one of my worst delusions was that I convinced myself that our history teacher at the school was an emissary of the devil and that he was trying to capture our souls by taking photos of us for the yearbook. So there are no photos of me in the yearbook from that entire year because I didn't want to have my soul stolen. So I refused to have my photo taken by him. Also, like when we would have theater performances, he would try to lead us in meditation, but I convinced myself that was some kind of satanic ritual that he was trying to like get us to sell our souls through. And it got worse and worse to the point that like I started trying to recruit my friends into this delusion and like convince my friends that we had like magic powers and that if we bonded together, our magic powers could defeat the evil of like Mr. L, our history teacher. And in a way, like looking back, I think that, you know, my parents or like other people who got wind of this just thought that it was like intense imagination. Like I've always been a creative kid. I'm, I'm a writer now, right? Like clearly I'm very good at making up stories, but the difference between like psychosis and imagination, right? is like, you truly believe it. Like you are living in the world that you've invented here. There's no room for thinking like, oh, well maybe this is just like a funny alternate reality that I'm constructing for myself. Like, no, it's the only reality. It's the one that you believe in. When we think about the connection between some of the trauma that you experience and then developing psychotic depression and, and these delusions, was it sort of your brain basically trying to avoid the reality of what your life was? Why do you think you started to develop that? Yeah, I mean, I actually think that that's probably pretty accurate. It became a story where the ending was always clear because the ending in the story was always going to be that, you know, you would triumph, that you would win. So it was basically a, a mechanism of survival. Yeah, I would say so. 
And you mentioned having depression as a child. We sort of live in a society where no one really believes that children have mental illnesses. I think a lot of children go unchecked with their mental illnesses because we sort of think, oh, they're a child. You know, all they want to do is be happy and play and they can't possibly be depressed or be sad when in reality, the more I'm learning about mental illness, the more I'm learning that those years are actually the most developmental in anyone's life at all. And when mental illness goes unchecked at that point, it can really become severe and problematic later on in someone's life. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I had been seeing professionals for anxiety since I was eight. So in a way it was like my family knew that something was wrong, but something like depression and especially like a psychotic disorder in a child, I don't think anyone's looking for anything that severe when a child does experience that. So I'm like a psychologist and a neuroscientist in my day job, my like non-writing career. And these kinds of experiences can literally re rewire children's brains. So like the longer that a child is left in the context of severe mental illness that is untreated, uh, the worse it can be and the harder it can be to treat later on because these pathways in their brain become very ingrained. Victoria, did you tell anyone about the sexual abuse as it was happening or after it ended? Yeah, so I told some people online on the internet. At the time, there were a lot of really good communities online for, for survivors to talk about our experiences. And so I did have an outlet in that way. And I had written about it in my diary, but I hadn't told my family. I remember at one point there had been like another encounter with my abuser and I had gone home afterward and I had thought, I'm going to call my friend Carolyn because I had just seen her the previous week and she had told me, you know, if you ever need to talk to me about anything, you know, I'm here. I'll always listen. I'll always believe you. You can always call. I was like, okay, I'm going to call Carolyn. And I'm going to tell her. And so I called her home. This was like back when there weren't really cell phones. So you were calling a landline. So I called her family's landline and her mother picked up and I asked if Carolyn was there and she said, no. And in my head, I thought, okay, well, that's it. Then that's a sign. I shouldn't tell anyone. I'm probably just overthinking things. And that then it like went on for two more years after that, because I just convinced myself that there was no point in telling that like, the universe didn't want me to tell. Now that I'm saying this, maybe another sign of psychosis, right? If I, I sincerely felt like this was like God's way of telling me not to tell anyone. My parents ended up reading my diary later, like after it had, after the abuse was finished and read about these accusations about Brian, who still lived across the street from us and was still a close family friend. And they had this whole intervention with me where I remember I came downstairs and they were sitting on the sofa and they asked me to come and have a seat because we were going to have a family meeting. I sat down and they said that they had read my diary, which first off, you know, was very much a betrayal of trust to me, apparently because they were constantly worried that I was on the verge of a suicide attempt and thought I would write about it in my diary. But they told me they had read about what I'd said about Brian and they wanted to know why I would make something up like this. And I was like, well, it isn't made up. It's true. And they said, well, Victoria, like, you know, you're not a very trustworthy person because you have this really vivid imagination, just I guess code word for delusions slash slash being a generally creative person. And I just really think that like you're saying this kind of thing for attention. So putting aside that that doesn't make sense because who seeks attention from a private diary that they don't think anyone's going to read, 
that to me was very much like a repetition of the narrative that he'd already set up for me. He mm. I confronted him before about the abuse um, when I was 16 and like had finally started to label it as what it was in my head. And like, I confronted him about it and he basically threatened to abuse my sister. If I told anyone, um, he said like, no one would believe you, your sister wouldn't mind. And so I told my parents during this conversation that at the very least, just don't let Ashlyn, my sister, hang out with them, with him anymore. And they did, they let her continue hanging out with him. And that to me, I feel like just completely devastated my trust in my family, but also like in like society and like the way that things are supposed to be set up. Like, you know, you always see in like the movies, you think, Oh, like the dad finds out that his daughter is being abused and he's going to beat him up or like the mom will cry and hug you and tell you it's all going to be okay. Like nobody ever just kind of sits there and is like, well, I kind of think you should shut up. And so that definitely, I think made things a lot worse for me mentally. And ultimately other girls came forward and said that he'd abused them as well. And so he went to trial and he was convicted. And so, you know, everything got tied up with a neat little bow in the end, but the journey of getting there was extremely fraught. And so basically what you're saying is you weren't even able to trust your caregivers. Right. In a lot of ways, this is something that I feel like other, that non-survivors don't understand. But when I tell survivors this, they 100% know what I mean immediately. Not being believed was more traumatizing to me than the abuse itself. Hmm not being believed was more traumatizing than the abuse itself. Yeah. Like when I, when people talk about triggers, um, you know, like people with PTSD, there are certain things that can trigger you and give you like a really strong negative emotional reaction. I mean, there's some things related to my abuse that do like the smell of fresh cut grass or the sight of a specific car that he used to drive. But the biggest things that can really just like derail my entire day are narratives of victim blaming or of, people not being believed. Like if I read, you know, as an author, if I read other people's books, that's one of the only things that I ask for trigger warnings on. I can read a rape scene, no problem, but I can't read in the aftermath if the victim isn't believed. So I'm guessing that had a lot to do with you coming forward about maybe some of your struggles with mental health in fear of not being believed about that as well. Well, in fear of not being believed about that, but also in fear that that would undermine my own stories about the abuse because you know by the time that I was 17 18 we were going to go to trial and I had had all of my mental health records subpoenaed at that point which did include some of my reports of delusion and psychosis and like the lawyer used that in his defense of my abuser saying well she clearly couldn't tell the difference between fantasy and reality anyway so how do we know that she could tell the difference between fantasy and reality when he was sexually assaulting her? And after that, like I had a really hard time. I still have a hard time, honestly, being entirely forthcoming with mental health professionals because I think that there's a not tiny possibility that this could get heard by everyone. And in turn held against you. Exactly. To like say that you aren't, a valid source of information for your own life. How long did the delusions and your psychotic depression go on for until you were officially diagnosed? When were you officially diagnosed? 
So my partner is a doctor and they once described this as if you're in the mental health system for long enough, you will eventually have every single diagnosis, which is true. In my life, like since I first started showing signs of depression until now, I've been diagnosed with everything from bipolar disorder to dissociative identity disorder to major depressive disorder, just you name it. I even got diagnosed once with conduct disorder, which is the diagnosis we give kids we think are going to grow up to be psychopaths. It's literally a diagnostic criterion for psychopathy. that They have to have had conduct disorder as a child. Anything you can imagine, they, they diagnosed me with as part of this like excavation of my psyche. And it wasn't really until I was an adult, like in my 20s, that somebody said, like, actually, you just have depression. And when your depression gets bad enough, you have psychosis or you have delusions. But it's part of depression. It's an extreme of the depressed state that you've been existing on some part of the spectrum of for your entire life. And to me, that felt like the final puzzle piece slipping into place. All these other diagnoses, you know, they didn't really fit. They didn't. It was like wearing a coat that wasn't tailored to you quite right. Victoria, I can't help but wonder, was it a relief for you when you were diagnosed officially? Yes and no. I think that having a label can be helpful because it allows you to feel like, okay, well, maybe this is fixable. Like maybe there's been research done on my specific condition. And so, but on the other hand, like, it's just the beginning, right? Like now you have to find a medication that will work for you. Now you have to stare down the barrel of the rest of your life, knowing that you have a condition that's never going to get better, that might only ever get worse, that has no cure, that might have no treatment. And that was such a it, important point that you brought up about it sort of being the beginning when you get the diagnosis. I think so many of us think of mental health diagnosis as kind of the end, like, oh, wow, this is finally finished. Like now, now it's understood what this is when really it's the beginning, because at that point you have to find your right dosage. You have to find the right medication. What was that journey like for you in particular? So when I think about medication and me, I just kind of want to like scream into the abyss. We, I have a long and tortured history with meds, uh, starting with like, I've tried every SSRI, every single one. And what is that? <laughs> it's a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor. It's the first line of treatment that we use for depression. And it works for like some people. It works really well. Um, and for a lot of people, it doesn't work at all. And when I was growing up, it like there weren't really other options. And I think for me, like I did end up eventually finding meds that worked for me. But it was an extremely long journey to get there. I feel like the kind of culture around meds that existed when I was growing up fed into my psychosis a little bit because I would try these meds that wouldn't really make me feel better. Right. But then when I quit them, I would feel worse because I would go through a withdrawal syndrome from stopping the drug. And so I ended up creating this conspiracy theory in my head where the only reason that anyone invented these drugs was to get take like vulnerable people and get them hooked on these drugs so they'll feel shitty when they go off them and feel like they need to go back on them so they can keep buying them and putting money in the pockets of doctors and pharmaceutical companies. So I would get in kind of in the habit of, even when I found meds that would work for me, just deciding one day out of nowhere, like, oh, I'm going to stop them. I'm just going to stop these meds. I don't need to be on them. I don't want to be on them for the rest of my life. 
and it's probably all a scam anyway. So you stop them and then you feel worse. And then of course the delusions start. And then you start thinking like, aha, I was right. And tell us the story of how you found the right medication. So I remember you telling me in our pre-interview, you were in college at that point and reading different studies. And can you tell us that story? Yeah. So basically um, I heard about Wellbutrin, which is now like a really common drug that people use. But um, I brought studies about that to my psychiatrist. I was like, I really want to try Wellbutrin. I really think it'll work for me. And And you had found them because you were studying this in school concurrently. Yes. Yeah. And uh, so I presented these studies and they were like, y'all right, cool. We'll do Wellbutrin. So we tried Wellbutrin and it worked. And I'm not going to say that I don't still sometimes have trouble with medication compliance. I think that's extremely common in people with depression and even more common in people with psychotic depression. But when I'm on it and when I'm able to stay on it, it works. And it's funny because in our pre-interview, I remember we talked about the Wellbutrin and how important it was for me to stay on it. And I realized as we were having that talk that I hadn't taken it in three days. And I went and got my bottle as we were having our conversation and took my meds because I'm not making that same mistake again. So let's actually talk about compliance to medication really quickly. I want to double click onto that. So do you have a fear of being on medication for the rest of your life? Yes, but it's a fear that doesn't make sense. Okay, so I have lupus, which is a lifelong chronic illness that can be extremely disabling, can for some people be life-threatening, that I take multiple medications for. I take these every day and I have no problem being committed to taking these every day. But the idea of being on mental health medication for the rest of my life scares the shit out of me. And it doesn't make sense because, you know, I wouldn't for a minute think to skip my lupus meds because I know that those are keeping me alive. But the mental health meds are keeping me alive too, right? There's a part of my brain that's out to kill me. And if I don't take those meds, that part of my brain's going to win. But the idea of taking them it feels like so different than the idea of taking meds for illness, for physical illness. And I think that so much of that is the stigma that we have about mental illnesses and particularly severe mental illnesses in society where it feels like, oh, you should be able to snap out of it. And if you can't snap out of it, then you should be institutionalized or hospitalized. Like it shouldn't be, it shouldn't be something you can just take a pill for. Like, and those are like the two depictions of mental illness that we see in mainstream media or in society. And so, like, I can sit there and I can take my immunosuppressants and feel completely fine about it and look at my Wellbutrin bottle sitting right next to it and be like, you know, I don't need that today. Victoria, I think a lot of people listening to this are asking themselves, how do you get something like this? Is it genetic? Is it circumstantial? Is it a mixture of both? I know you mentioned you had experiences in your childhood that could have developed this or could have contributed to this, but do you think it was also something else? Are certain people, do certain people have a predisposition? There are three components to the development of mental illness. There's a biological component. So that would be like your genetic component. For me, for example, I have both my grandmothers had mental illness. Um, One of them diagnosed, one of them undiagnosed, but very apparent. That's the biological component. Then there's the psychological component, which is, if something happens, whether you choose to interpret it as a challenge or a threat, right? Just the way that your brain tends to process this kind of information. And then social is like, what is happening in your social environment? 
are you do you experience abuse do you grow up in poverty or in neglect or around violence what are like the social pressures are you bullied right and if you have all these three things together like each success of one increases your odds of developing mental illness the very like quick cliche way to put it is that genetics loads the gun but environment pulls the trigger we'll be right back Unshaming is proudly supported by Brightside. Brightside offers personalized mental health care from your home on your schedule. It's online therapy that works. I talk so much on Unshaming about destigmatizing mental health and the importance of therapy. Therapy is a form of taking care of ourselves, especially after such a difficult year. All of Brightside's plans follow the highest clinical standards and are based on American Psychiatric Association guidelines and are affordable. And with Brightside's Better Care Guarantee, you can get a full refund within 30 days, no questions asked. Join thousands of Brightside members taking back their lives. Take your free mental health assessment and get up to $100 credit on your first month of treatment at brightside.com unshaming. That's brightside.com slash unshaming, brightside.com slash unshaming. Hey, I'm Rushumba, and I'm the art director for Unshaming. Every single color, font, and image in this project has been chosen with intention. When developing the art direction for Unshaming, I asked myself, what does it look like when we bring our whole selves into the world? And that question drives all our work at Unshaming. This podcast shares the stories of the silenced voices in our society. If you value this kind of work, you can support it. You can donate to our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash unshaming. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash unshaming. You speak so matter-of-factly about everything that you've been through and even your journey now. I wonder, has that taken you a while to get to that point to sort of look at your experiences objectively and, and trace them back to science or are there parts of you that still are confused and don't really understand fully what's going on? Yeah, yes and no. So like, I think I've always been a very straightforward person. I think it's a coping mechanism for me, actually. Like, especially like, for example, it can come up when I'm talking about the abuse. I always hear people say kind of with a note of disbelief in their voice, like, wow, you really just like said that. Like, I don't know how to like inject emotion into it. Maybe it's that I can't, right? Like if I had to like sit there and feel like in full technicolor, all of the emotions that are tied up in mental illness or in trauma, maybe I wouldn't be able to talk about it at all. I can look at these things like they're happening to somebody else. Like they're happening to a character in a story and I can be like, aha, yeah. Oh, I see how that influenced that. Oh yeah, that, that all comes together. That makes sense. And I just don't feel anything about it. And I think that if anything, that's what makes me feel the weirdest. And I feel like maybe because, you know, I had to be in this trial, you know, as a teenager and I had to talk about things and I had to like be completely emotionally closed off so that like if the defense for my abuser were to confront me about my mental health history or something like that so that I wouldn't break so that I could just be completely like a stone and like not let him impact me at all. 
And maybe I've just kind of like carried that through. And so it, it essentially is kind of a, a surviving mechanism, not only to, not only to avoid reliving those painful memories, but also to be seen as a credible member of society. You know, actually, that's a really good point that I hadn't thought about. And like, as a patient, as somebody with mental illness, you are constantly trying to like, claim your own agency back and be seen as credible and be seen as like a valuable member of society or somebody who should be listened to somebody who should be believed, especially if you have a history of not being believed and having that undermined. I think you kind of do like file away the rougher edges of your own experience to seem more palatable or seem like more normal and like more believable. And I think this is a good segue into sort of the next segment of our interview, which is talking about how people with mental illnesses are treated in society. So I want to ask you, what are some of your experiences as a mentally ill? Well, well, let me ask you this. How do you identify? How, how do you refer to yourself? Is it as a mentally ill person, a person with mental illness? That's usually what I say. I mean, everyone like kind of has a different perspective. For me, I would say person with mental illness, maybe partly because like my mental illness is so like relapsing remitting. And so it's not, you know, something that I'm dealing with every day. It's only something that I'm dealing with when I'm in an episode of it. So yeah, a person with mental illness seems to fit for me. Okay. So let me, let me re-ask that with that phrasing. So as a person with mental illness, what have been some of your experiences in the various different situations you've been in where your mental illness has been disclosed to people? Okay. So when you go online these days, it feels like a lot of the discourse around mental illness is very like supportive, very anti-stigma, um, very focused on like self-care and kind of like these like day-to-day things that you can do to improve your life as a person with mental illness. Take a bubble pers- bath, go for a workout class. Yeah. Right. Like listen to some music, meditate. If you're like, yeah, all oh, that's great. But like, it never like quite lands for me in the way that maybe it does for other people. Because for me, like the most important thing about like mental illness activism is always going to be like thinking about it from an institutional level and like the way that like states and like institutions and like people with power treat people with mental illness. So like, for example, I've been like institutionalized. I've been in academic hospitals, but I've also been in like state hospitals for mentally ill people. And And tell us what that means to be institutionalized. So when I say institutionalized, I mean like the kind of place where you get taken in the back of a police car handcuffed and they like strip search you when you get there and make you bend over and cough, that kind of thing. So like a jail? It isn't. It's not like, it's not for criminals. It's just for like people that are either too mentally ill. They think to like put in the regular unit or like, there's just not room in the regular unit. And so they send them here. And And you've been there before. Yeah, I've been there. I've been institutionalized once and I've been in, hospital-based, like, academic psychiatric units, a whole bunch. And, like, I definitely see, like, a really strong difference between them. But one thing they both have in common is they're both, like, incredibly dehumanizing and incredibly infantilizing of the person with mental illness. Like, you know, you go into these places, you're not allowed to leave, the door is locked, you're not allowed to have, like, certain things, like a cell phone or, like, read certain books, everything's checked for you. You have to, like, get up at a certain time of day, like, and follow this schedule Um, It's very difficult to be in these environments, at least for me, and feel like it's helpful 
like this institution, like what they think about you and how they view you and people like you and the benefit that they think that you have to offer society and realizing like, oh, society thinks that I'm trash. Society thinks that I belong in this unit and that I can't make my own decisions. And that like has always been incredibly demoralizing for me. And I think that it, like it plays a role a lot in the way that like people with severe mental illness just fall through the cracks of society. Like when you're caught in this revolving door of hospitals, like it's difficult to get an education. It's difficult to hold down a job and it's difficult not to kind of see yourself becoming part of like the fabric of the system. And like the more you're in the hospital, the more you feel like that's the world rather than like the world of the outside. Victoria, do you mind telling us how you got institutionalized? Yeah. I had been brought to the hospital by my dad for a suicide attempt. And, you know, when we got there, I was like, you know, I, I already regret it. Like, I'm not going to do it again. It was impulsive. Like, How old were you? 14. And I was just like, it was impulsive. I'm not going to do it again. Like, I feel better. Like, I can go home. And my dad, like, had seen me do this before. So he also was like, team me, team, like, Victoria can go home. But the doctors there put me in a padded room and told my dad that he had to commit me to the hospital. Like he had signed papers to commit me. And he said, well, I don't want to, like, I don't think that she needs to be hospitalized. I think that she's fine. I think that like she said, it was impulsive. And the hospital said, well, if you don't sign the papers, we can get a court order. And my dad didn't want to uh, literally get me like court mandated to be hospitalized. Cause that's his whole own can of worms. It's a lot harder to get discharged. Um, so he did sign the papers, but there was no bed at the ward that was in the hospital that we were at, which was a ward I'd been in several times before. And so they said like, oh, well, you have to go to the state hospital. And so they literally took me in the back of this police car, handcuffed like a criminal, you know, made me take off all of my clothes, do a strip search, bend over, like went through all my stuff, paged through like every page in my journal to make sure nothing was in there that... I guess was contraband. I don't know. And there you are. It's you and somebody who like tried to kill their little sister sharing a room as if, like, as if that's like what they think that you might be capable of. And how long were you there for? I was only there for a week. So that was really good. (laughs) But that was the place that I got diagnosed with like oppositional defiant disorder and conduct disorder which are like kind of like the pre-psychopathy diagnoses, which again, like I said, my roommate had tried to kill their little sister. So maybe that they just saw that in all of us. Maybe they just were predisposed to think that people with severe mental illness were violent because it obviously didn't fit. <laughs> but how were you treated there? Uh, basically like a criminal. I mean, like not just because of like that diagnosis, but like if you express any anger at any point, and again, I'm not talking like getting violent, like throwing chairs around or something. I'm talking just like raising your voice or like sounding irritated. Like they would basically just put you on lockdown. Like they thought that you were like going to become a threat. You know, there was a constant threat of like being strapped down or like being given held all, which is like a sedative. And you, know, you saw that happen to other people who like would get upset. And so you kind of felt like, okay, I can't show any emotions. I have to just be like a gray rock just survive through this until I can leave. Cause if I do anything else, 
they're going to see it as a sign of like me being dangerous and they're going to keep me here for longer. How do you think that ties into the wider picture of how people with mental illness and severe mental illness in society are treated? Do you think there's a correlation there between how you were treated in the institution and in society at large? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that like, for one, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Like if you treat people like they are worthless, like they're going to feel as if they are worthless and they're going to feel like this kind of learned helplessness, like there's no point in trying. They're going to feel like they don't have a place in society. I don't know. Just thinking about like what the ways this could have gone wrong, right? Like imagine that like, what if I had gotten angry at some point and like slammed my fist against the table or something? Like the rest of my life could have looked so different from that one action but also like thinking about the ways in which i was really fortunate because i'm white and i was middle class and i kind of was viewed as like somebody who could be helped maybe more than like somebody who didn't have as many resources or as much privilege and like even though my family was like not the greatest in some respects when it comes to like believing me about the abuse they were at least like very on top of like my mental health and like were you know seeking out treatment for me since i was eight right and like you know, trying to keep me out of this hospital when they thought I didn't need to be there. Like they were very much on my side in a lot of ways. So I feel like I had a lot of like benefits and a lot of safety nets. You know, I had a lot of room to make mistakes and have like second and third and fourth chances with them. So now kind of going into your identity as a writer and a storyteller, how have all of these experiences in your life shaped the way that you tell stories? For me, I think it's always been very important to write characters and their experiences without kind of appealing to those archetypes as much. Like I always want to write an honest story and an honest representation of abuse survivorship or of um, psychosis or depression. And for me, that doesn't mean like writing the story, I guess, that is the story that's been told a hundred times. Like I want to write the stories that speak to the people who are going through these things who haven't seen their realities reflected in media yet. So for example, with my first book, the fever King, the main character or one of the main characters is a sexual abuse survivor. I wrote him as being very angry and very like promiscuous and an addict and very like cognizant of what had happened to him. And like, to me, that was like an experience that, resonated with me and resonated with a lot of readers, but I know it's not everyone's right. And one thing it certainly isn't is kind of the archetype of abuse victim that we see in the media or that people who haven't experienced that expect. And with my current book that's coming out now, like A Lesson in Vengeance, the main character has psychotic depression. And I think that her experiences are for me, like very realistic, but I have no idea how they're going to read to somebody who hasn't actually experienced it because the representations of psychotic depression or of psychosis or of depression that people without these conditions are seeing are just completely manufactured by the media, by people who've never experienced them. Ultimately, at the end of the day, I just want them to speak to people who will resonate with them. The person maybe with psychotic depression, like undiagnosed psychotic depression, who reads that and thinks like, oh shit, like I feel that way. These are now relatable. These are something that can happen to the main character. My life can be validated, I guess, in that way and be like reflected back at me. 
And that's really what I think the beauty of having not only wider representation, but more nuanced representation is all about having that ability to see a mirror of yourself represented and know that how you feel and what your experiences are, are normal. Yeah, exactly. Like, I think that I'm really proud to be a part of that and to like contribute, you know, from my own lived experience to the canon of literature about people with depression and, you know, trauma survivors and so on. So Victoria, my last question is, is kind of around understanding that there are so many more people a part of this community of having a mental illness than I think we even understand or or know about. There's so many people living with undiagnosed mental illnesses. And I guess, you know, who are just afraid to maybe even come forth about the possibility of having a mental illness or who are afraid to even understand that they can be living with a mental illness out of fear of the stigma, out of fear of not being wanted to be thought of as quote unquote crazy, not wanting to be labeled, not wanting to have their credibility taken away from them. What do you want people to know about your community? I guess I would say that we are you know, just like anyone else, we still want the same things. We still have the same hopes and dreams, like, you know, dehumanization of people with severe mental illness is a major problem. And to fight back against it is to like, start to see people with severe mental illness as being you, but in a different circumstance. I'm sure that there are people listening to this right now who are thinking like, that I sound very like articulate and educated and not like somebody with psychosis. And to me, I would say like, well, that's because you are mental depiction of somebody with psychosis is not realistic. One, like if you had taught to me 20 years ago, I would not sound the way that I sound now. Um, I would not like sound articulate or put together, but two, like there are so many people with psychosis that is well controlled or treated that are, you know, well integrated members of society that you would not know for a second deal with psychosis. And there are so many people who are struggling with psychosis now that's untreated or undermanaged or undersupported that if only they had those resources, they would thrive. And like, it's really just an accessibility question. And, you know, the onus is on people without mental illness and abled and neurotypical people to try and like, at least meet them where they are and like, be there for them and see them as humans, regardless of their level of functionality. Like there's people with psychosis who are absolute geniuses and there are people who are below average intelligence. There are people who have PhDs and there are people who didn't graduate middle school. There are so many different ways to exist within this diagnosis and all of them are valid and all of them are important and all of them are human. And like starting to see the community, not as being like a monolith, but seeing them as like a full spectrum of experience, just like you would any other identity, I think is really important. What hope do you have to give for not just people who are living with a mental illness, but for the loved ones of people who are living with a mental illness? I think that so much of it depends on like finding people in your community who can support you, finding like a therapist or a psychiatrist who is willing to treat you and meet you where you're at and like 
engage in like healthy treatment planning for you. For me, like, yes, I will have psychosis probably for the rest of my life. Um, I will need to be on medication for the rest of my life, even if I'm operating at a harder level of difficulty to move through life than somebody without a psychotic disorder. I can still move through life and I can still like constantly be approaching my ultimate goals and like whittling away the obstacles that are keeping me from them. What are your dreams, Victoria? Is it to be a parent? Is it to dive deeper into your field? Is it to, you know, write a, a, a really amazing novel? Like, what do you dream of? I mean, all of the above. I mean, in a lot of ways, I'm already living my dream. Like when I, I remember once I was in the hospital, I was in the psych ward and they asked us to, you know, envision our perfect life and to write down what it would look like. You know, I said I wanted to live in New York City. I wanted to be a published author. I wanted to have a dog and I wanted to have a partner. All of those things have happened for me now. And at the time, like that seemed like it was so impossible because I had dropped out of college twice at that point. Like I was so like mentally ill. I just couldn't, I couldn't, it felt like I couldn't move forward at all. And then now like here I am, I've done every single one of those things on my list. And now I'm just looking forward at the next thing. Like I want to be a parent. I want to... I'm moving soon. I want to move to this new neighborhood and like settle into a community there. I want to write more books. I, you know, I recently got my PhD. And so that was another goal that I've accomplished. And now I want to like explore this area of research and learn as much as I can about like the things that I'm passionate about. It feels like the world is open to me. And I feel like I do have a lot of dreams and a lot of hopes and a lot of things that I want to accomplish. And I feel like I've proven to myself that I can do them and that despite everything that has been an obstacle for me and like I proved them wrong and I did it. So why shouldn't I do everything? Why shouldn't I do everything I want? I love that. Well, Victoria, thank you for sharing your unshaming story on the show. Thank you so much. It's just an amazing conversation. I loved it. I'm Jorgen Salvis and you've been listening to Unshaming. For more information about anyone featured on the show, follow us on Instagram and TikTok at Unshaming or visit unshamingpodcast.com. If you loved this episode, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We love hearing from you. So if you have questions or want to tell us what you're unshaming, DM us on Instagram or email us at unshamingpodcast at gmail.com. Special thanks to Mirzi for generously providing her original music. You can find her wherever you stream. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.